Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? So, so this is what it's going to be. There's yeah, no we, Jason. I was like, I was like, other. yeah, I was just sitting there waiting. Like someone's going to introduce us, right? Yeah. Jason, you need to be, you need to be here. We miss you. <laughs> yeah. So I can't, how does, how does Jason even start it? Oh, it's all mucky without him. The train's oh, gone off the rails. Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty funny. Cause like we do this every week, but not even thinking about it. He does some intro that we usually do, but here we are. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so we definitely need to leave this in. And let's just try. Yeah, it's going to be funny. Hey, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Andrew? <laughs> Another episode of Remote Ruby. And we don't know the intro because we're missing our fearless leader, Jason. Yeah. How's your week been? It's been pretty good. No complaints. I think I finally started settling back into the swing of things a little bit. Yeah. Anything anything good happen? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> now I got to think about it. The episode that you and I recorded with Joel Hosky went live yesterday for the Ruby Blend where we talked about view component. And the next day I opened a PR to move like 70 views to view component. Oh, dang. You moving so, off Hamill finally? <laughs> so, okay. This is pretty funny real quick. So Nate is taking a little bit more of an administrative role at CodeFund. And Eric, who was handling all the administrative work, is coding some more, like getting out of that, just doing a little bit more code. And he looked at all the component stuff I did, and he really liked it. And he said, well, the problem now is that all of our views kind of look like wonky because they're all rendering out to Ruby now, basically. And there's like very little if no HTML in many of them. He's like, we should move to Hamel or Slim. And I couldn't tell if he was trolling or not. He wasn't. He generally was like, we should look into this. And I was like, okay. So we hopped on a call and we looked at moving to Slim. And I was like, all right, yeah, this looks pretty good. Like the views like much more readable now. And there's no like, massive amounts of end blocks everywhere. And right. so I ran like a slim converter to like convert the views over. And then I realized that that was not going to work like I thought it was. Like it just was not, like it was going to be a manual process or at least manual for some of the views. Like it just wouldn't convert everything over mm-hmm. yeah. correctly. And just different syntax stuff that's really hard to parse mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So when that happened, I was washed over with this amazing feeling of total total and complete lack of desire to do that work. I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this at all. Man, that is hilarious because like, have you ever used Active Admin? I, not really. Is that the one that's in the free Jumpstart one? No, that's Administrate, which no. thought about, man. So, Active Admin is like, it's been popular for a long time. It's probably still the most popular Rails like admin gem. But one of the things that frustrates me about it is that 
so they use this Arbre DSL, which is like you can type TR and div and give it a block and you're just writing Ruby to make HTML, which is fine. But the way that they generate their stuff is like automatic. And then so if you want to go override it, you have to actually rewrite everything that they were generating for you automatically by hand, which means you have to go like dig through the gem or something to find what it was doing in order to like go copy that, which is like a real pain in the butt. But like having that was nice because it felt like you were just like, you know, writing your your code and Ruby always being in that mindset without having to dive back and forth into HTML and like, oh yeah, like class colon space instead of class equals, you know, for strings and attributes in HTML and all that. You know, it was nice to be able to be in the same mindset, but it was all in one giant file too. So it's like your user dashboard or whatever is like your filters, then your index, then your show and all that. And I eventually like just figured out how to render to, you know, render an ERB file instead. Cause it was like, it's not good to have all of your admin configuration in one single file for the whole crud in the admin. Not fun. But it does bring me back to thinking about if you were to write few components that used your, you know, the tag.div method in Ruby and stuff instead of, you know, HTML could be interesting. I don't know. There may be some overhead of that generating strings and concatenating stuff and whatever, which might be a little bit faster in ERB because it's like adding strings together more simply. But I don't know. It's kind of an interesting idea. Do you think you're going to go do that with like your own projects or something just to see how it works? If you want to go like fully remove ERB or something and or even like in theory, you could even remove Hamel, right? Like Hamel that'd be crazy. Be removed. <laughs> it's funny that I, I always talk about Hamel, but like when we were thinking about moving to it, I was like, yeah, we should use Slim. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know because there's a lot of views in CodeFund that don't have any HTML in them. I would say actually maybe the majority at this point just because Mm -hmm. now we have components and we also have all my helper stuff, which Joel actually, he saw that and he really liked it. So I was like, yes, plus one for the table helpers. I mean, your helpers and your components are what probably... Your helpers are trying to function as similar to a, a component, you know? So mm-hmm. you're probably well on your way there already, which is interesting. Yeah. And the syntax is a little bit smaller, which was, is nice. But have you, have you ever looked at Lucky with Crystal? Uh, yeah, I was going to bring that up too. It uses DSL for generating HTML, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I haven't used Lucky enough to say anything really intelligent on it, but that's what I thought about at first because I... I've looked at it and I really like the way they handle the views and stuff. Yeah. I, the only concern I've had is like the reason I always root for ERB over Hamel or Slim is like someone who's a front end dev who may not know Ruby can work, you know, productively because they know HTML and replacing stuff with ERB tags is really similar enough. They understand that. And then, you know, a designer, whoever might 
mock something up in HTML would be able to like go tweak it in your code in ERB, which would be probably a lot harder for them to do if if you weren't using that. You know, so it, it, there's probably a trade off there. But yeah, I haven't used Lucky enough myself either to to determine if you know that's a good thing that I want to do more of or whatever. But I should try that out sometime. We've fiddled a little bit with like building a kind of like a clone of Rails in in Crystal a few weeks. Well, I guess more than a few weeks back at this point. We were just fiddling with that just to see, you know, could you build something that works like Rails in Crystal? And there's some things like, I forget, Amber framework that's like going that direction, but it's not quite the same. Like they're not choosing one ORM to use, but they're like ECR format is like embedded Ruby ERB. And it's it's interesting because if you're using Lucky or Crystal, like all your views have to be compiled. So every time you update a view, you can't just refresh the page right away because you got to recompile the app, which is a pain in the butt. So like, I think they've improved that somehow. So they may have to just recompile like, a library that they can dynamically link or something and do it faster. But like there's a time when I tried Amber and you would edit like a view in a, in a rails, like or in just a plain scaffold and it would take 30 seconds to recompile before you could check the page again. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm not like waiting that much time to build a website. Like that's horrible. So yeah, I imagine they've got some improvements since then, but yeah, compile time yeah. suck. Yeah, I, I looked at Amber, but I actually met Paul Smith, who is the maintainer and creator of Lucky on a podcast, actually. And I don't know, I, re- I really like Paul. I think he's doing a really good job of kind of, he's really helpful. He's always willing to help and answer questions about the framework. And he's done a really good job. And I don't think I would consider using anything other than Lucky if I was going to do something in Crystal. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I saw him tweet at you the other day. Does he work at GitHub now or something? He does work at GitHub. So when I met Paul, he was working at was ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot. Yeah. And then he went somewhere else and I can't remember. I feel like maybe he worked for Heroku uh, for a little bit. And yeah. then now he's working at GitHub on like the discussions team. Ooh, I can't wait for that feature. Yeah. I'm excited for that. Yeah. I thought about tweeting at him and then I was like, uh, I want it on CodeFund. I really do. I think we could definitely leverage it. And I probably just mm-hmm. need to like tweet at him and ask. But I don't know. In my head, when I was about to send that message, I was like, is that like rude? Is that like, you know, if your buddy works at like Bojangles or something, walking up in the Bojangles and being like, hey, can I get some free stuff? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're just getting like a early taste of the feature. I think that's fine. Right. But yeah, well, I saw... I definitely provide feedback. So. Was it Adam Wylan? tweeted about it a while mm-hmm. back because he's kind of got this similar predicament that I have of like, you know, selling Jumpstart or selling Tailwind UI for him. You need to provide like source code access ideally to your customers. But like the GitHub team's pricing was awful before because yeah, you paid like $7 a month per customer, which just eats, you're selling something for one time and then like, in a few months, you're going to make $0 and then you're going to start costing money for per month per customer. So like I'm using GitLab, which is fine, but their UI is just lacking, you know, compared to 
to GitHub, but with Teams going free mostly, I forget what the features were that you you could still pay like four bucks a month for. But that's going to be really nice, including you know discussions, which will make it like the perfect hosting you know for a paid project like Jumpstart or um, Tailwind UI, which is pretty sweet. I can't wait for those things to come out. It'd be nice. Yeah, I saw that. I've only used GitLab for Jumpstart, and yeah, I'm. I've heard they're like pretty advanced in some areas of the product, but. I just, I couldn't get around in the UI. I was like, I feel like things should be here or yeah. visibility. But that could also just be because I'm used to GitHub. So I it's, don't know. it's not. It's the, the thing is, I've used it enough, but they're like, their buttons aren't colorful or there's like, there's not v- very good visual separation in a lot of stuff. So like, it might be there. If you look at the GitHub, like, PR or issues, the the comments and the the history of what's happened, closing it and reopening it is all nice and easy to read. But if you go to theirs, it's just like stuff feels jumbled, you know, and it's like too much white and black and not enough separation between things. And I'm not a designer, but I you you can tell that like they just need to get some some more design effort into the product because from their pace of engineering, like building CI and everything else, Kubernetes support and whatever, you know, they have so many features. They just need to like, you know, hire twice as many designers or something, you know, but they're like flying on the, the feature side of things. It's just, it's painful to use still. And it's felt pretty slow too. But I think they're like, figuring all that out as they go and they can't, you know, the, the amount of complexity there, that's not a simple app to build, especially when everything's backed by, you know, Git and whatever. So it is a complicated product to build, but they've done pretty darn good job. I have to say, even though like the UI needs some work, but it's, it's still good. I just would prefer to use GitHub until, until they, you know, fix things up. So we shall see. And brings up the I the crazy moment the other day where I opened my email. I was looking for like Hatchbox support tickets or whatever that came in. And then the top one's like, you have a new GitHub sponsor for a thousand dollars a month. And like wow. That was I read it like five times and I was like, this should be a hundred dollars, right? Like, did he make a typo or like what the hell? So yeah, I have a thousand dollar month GitHub sponsor, and wasn't a typo because I you have to actually choose a tier that you pay for, and I forgot that I put one in there for a thousand bucks a month, and I knew no one was going to ever do it, and then here we are. So that was a crazy moment, and then I I tweeted it, and then Nat from GitHub like said congrats on Twitter and stuff, got some like. 2000 some favorites on there. It's pretty crazy. But I think people are really excited to see that that's like, you can make a living on that, you know? And then I got in to get up sponsors before January, which means that I get like up to five grand matched. So like that 1000 is actually 2000 for five months or whatever, which is pretty insane. So... That was a, a cool experience, I have to say. That was the big highlight of my week this week. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you know who it was or do you want to say who it was? It's a private sponsor, so I won't mm. say, but yeah, it was a cool guy. We had a call yesterday because my like, I forgot that the thing that I put, like if you sponsor me for a thousand bucks a month, we'll give you like four hours consulting time or, or something to work mm-hmm. on whatever you need help with. I certainly need to limit that because I, you know, don't need too many of those. Otherwise I won't be able to work on everything else. But yeah, it was like, okay, someone paid that. So now I better, I either need to like limit it or double the price for, you know, anybody else or something. So I don't get too busy with that, but it was kind of, kind of awesome. So yeah, he's a cool guy and you know, it'll be fun to work with this guy on what he's working on. He's got a cool, cool project, but and talk about that later if he, he wants to share it or not. But yeah, pretty pretty insane. Yeah, congrats, dude. That's that's awesome. I'm jealous. But then again, I say I'm jealous, but then I think like the the projects that you have out in the open versus the projects I have out in the open are <laughs> slightly different. Yeah, so, like, somebody tweeted at me that was like, did you have to promote it? And I was like, technically I didn't, but like I have like... 350 screencasts and tutorials and whatever else. Like, so it effectively has been promoted. I just didn't like push people to it. But it's neat to see that like people were already paying for GitHub and whatever, or or they used to, even though it's now like mostly free. But you know, it's the right platform, I think, to to have a sponsorship or something on there. So it like I think uh Caleb or Parisio, um, the Alpine dev, he had a similar situation, like making two grand a month from his GitHub sponsors with the matching, which is seriously awesome. It'll drop down once the matching is over, but still, you know, that's significant. You get 10, 20 people doing that, making good money. So you could do a full-time open source work if you could organize enough sponsors that way. And then they have like the sponsor button at the top of the repos and all that. Put it in your readme. You can get people to go sponsor you, even if it's for five bucks a month or whatever. So pretty cool. I'm excited. Yeah. I want to plug Nate is trying to get sponsors on GitHub for stimulus reflex type things. So I added a PR to Cable Ready and Stimulus Reflex the other day. I probably need to do this on the Expo site as well, but just to display that sponsor button to try to drive people there. Yep. Yeah, it'd be good to put it on the docs and that sort of thing too. Yeah, and I kind of leaked it on on Twitter, but next week the Stimulus Reflex episode on GoRails will be live, which was super fun. Like, I guess by the time this gets published, it will already be live. So you can check that out on GoRails, but we do like... A, just a little to-do list thing, like check a box, trigger re- reflex to market as completed. And, you know, that updates the page. And also doing like an example of the form stuff we talked about with Nate in the past. Just a super simple example, but doing real-time validations basically, which like, what's the name of the, the library with stimulus reflex that does the real-time validations? Optimism? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Someone made a gem called optimism to do form type things. I have a commit to it, I'm pretty sure, but I don't think I've ever used it and I really ought to. Yeah, I haven't used it. Yeah, I want to try it. So maybe that'll be a follow up episode too. But I also want to go do like a 
a more complex example with stimulus reflex too. One of the things that I keep thinking of is, and I don't know if you guys have done this, but like, have you done any, or has Nate done any stimulus reflex where, you know, I might take an action, but it would broadcast the update to everybody. Like if we were building a tic-tac-toe game or something where I make my move, then everybody else gets, you know, the rendered version. Is that something that is easily doable? So I've never done it, but someone made a chat, maybe it was Nate, someone made a chat application on that's on the expo site that I imagine okay. would provide you probably the answers. Because yeah, we could hop on it right now and chat and you would see like both of our messages popping up. Yeah, because I figure it's basically like, you know, gonna broadcast by default back to whoever triggered the reflex, but then you just change it to broadcast to everybody or something. So yeah, a chat would be very similar. You know, any any of those examples would make perfect sense. So I'll have to check that out and, and try and do that as an episode or something. Because I think Jason, who couldn't make it, mentioned he was working on a stimulus reflex game or something. So maybe he's doing something similar. Yeah, it's exciting to see like we've started getting more and more people into the Discord and more people using it. And yeah, it's been exciting to see more and more people like using the library. Especially when yeah. like since I was there, like when Nate was first like he he had abstracted it from another code base, but when he was first like getting it out there in the public, that's when I started working on it with him. Like a lot of it's like over my head. Like I mostly have maintenance type things like adding GitHub actions and, you know, doing the readme and stuff like that. Less, not specifically in the code as much, but it's been cool to watch. Yeah. I still think that that's like a great way to eventually contribute code. Like if you were a lot of people who have become Rails contributors are just like monitoring the issues as they come across. And then they're like, oh, this means better documentation. I can help on that. And then at some point, they're like, oh, I don't know. I'll just try and see if I can fix this in Rails and you know, and see if I can replicate it with the test and then find out if it's a bug or it's like the user's error. So you know, I think that's a good way to, to do that. Like pitch in with the gem on you know, docs and whatever else you can that's simple. And then eventually work your way into code. Cause if you're watching, if you're watching Nate respond to technical questions and you know, commits that are coming in, you're gonna start getting familiar with it, even though you don't realize it. You know, it may not feel like it, but then you'll be able to dive in and be like, oh, that was easier than I thought. So it won't be it, it won't be long before you're like forking the gem and like going building a better version. You know. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I gotta push them out. I have dove pretty deep into Cable Ready, which is the underlying library for Simius Reflex. Because at some point when I was on my TypeScript hype chain, like a month or two back, Nate and I talked and he, he challenged me to convert Cable Ready to TypeScript, which I almost did. Like I almost completed it, but then like I stopped because I got, I got like 90% there. And then I was like, yeah. I'm done here. And I, <laughs> I, looking back on it, there were a lot of things like I could have redone. 
are done differently. And now I have a little bit more knowledge in that area. Like I was actually last night rethinking about trying to do that again. Do you use TypeScript on anything else or is that kind of your first foray into it? No, I use it on some things. Like I don't, I'm never going to put in a Rails app, but I, I've written some Gatsby sites with TypeScript. I created a, a package for using CodeFun ads with React in TypeScript. And I've done oh, that. Cool. I did the cable ready one in TypeScript and I've just played with it a few and a few other things. I remember looking into cable ready when I first saw stimulus reflex, but I haven't I haven't dove through any of that code. Both of those libraries I wanna like explore and just see how they work. Cause my hunch is that they're a lot simpler than it seems. But it's just like I think most people's impressions of stimulus reflex is like similar to what is it, Laravel Live View and Phoenix Live View. And those, they're similar and they just provide this crazy experience where you're like, I didn't write any JavaScript and like there's magic happening here. And it like brings you back to the early days of Rails where you're like, I didn't write, I wrote a scaffold, like one line of code in the, in the terminal, not even any Ruby and I have all this. So it's it's cool to see that like, People are excited about it, which is something that hasn't been happening enough lately in the Rails world. Like everybody's like, oh, it's, you know, it's stable and it's not cool anymore. But like we could still be doing cool things, guys. Like, go make stuff like this. This is, you know, exactly what we need more of. So yeah. It for reference, cable ready is only 267 lines of code. It's one file. And well, actually, it's one JavaScript file and then maybe one or two Ruby files. Oh, that's Just tiny. To, yeah. Yeah. And Simeus Reflex used to be about the same size. But, you know, as more and more people came in, more feature requests, it got a little bit bigger. So I don't know quite how big that is yet, but it's still not very big. Like, you can yeah. read it pretty quickly. Wasn't there another another release in the past week of Stimulus Reflex? I think. Yes, I think there may there may have been more than one, yeah. Because there was some change that there was there was some break breaking change that had to get made. So we moved to three zero because with before Rails six, the Action Cable NPM package was just called Action Cable, and when mm-hmm. it moved to Rails six, it became at Rails slash Action Cable, and they're not backwards compatible. So we did a major version bump. Like I looked into a few ways of maybe, you know, could we easily have a way for you to do both, but there wasn't. So we did a breaking, or Nate did a breaking change and moved to 3.0 to move to the new at Rails slash action cable. And then there was something else that got added. I think that kind of broke some things, but then I think that got fixed. And I also added in automatic an automatic changelog GitHub action. So now it, because before there was no changelog and no release notes. So when you're upgrading, you're like, what's (laughs) happened? Like, what's the difference? Like yada, yada. And there was no way to tell. And it was even hard for me. Like Nate was like, can you update Signus Reflex? And I was like, what's changed? So I created a GitHub action to automatically create a changelog 
after every push to master. So uh, nice. now that should be getting... I hope that's helpful because that at least at minimum will be showing you, you know, what's added and removed and things like that. And I'm pretty sure I told Nate that this is what I do on another project that I literally just copy the change log up to the last like release and then put that into the release notes. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I need to start doing that better on a couple of the gems that I'm working on. Yeah. Having, having a good, well-formatted change log is something that I didn't really care about for a long time. And now I'm like, oh my God, if you don't put it in the change log, especially like breaking changes or a major major version going up and you don't have any notes as to why, then I got to go read your commits. And then like, I'm just not going to use your gem anymore. Like if you're not going to maintain it where it's easy for other people to use it, then I'm like, I don't know. So yeah, you guys have always had like a good, good format for readmes and stuff that I think is a good inspiration for me too to to go through and like format things better and you know include all the I like having the like Ruby code style standard RB and that sort of stuff in there too, which is kind of cool. So the readme is all me. <laughs> I uh, I love a good readme, so I. Submitted PRs not too long ago to update the cable ready and Simus Reflex README. And if you have a README you want, like I called it pizzazzed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like send me a link and if I have time, I'll do it. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask if you have like a rough template or whatever for this, but it's probably pretty easy to just grab, you know, stimulus reflex mm-hmm. or, or whatever and start from there. Yeah. Do you do the same thing with like, you know, your GitHub pull request template and other like config things, mostly copy those around or you have like a source repo that you keep those? I have a source repo that I was keeping them that's not up to date anymore. I do kind of copy them around, but I commonly find myself, you know, in one project doing one thing. And then I'll copy them to another project, but then maybe thinking like, okay, I can, how can I enhance this a little bit? The issue templates are pretty static, but the pull request template is something that I'm constantly trying to think like, how can this be better? And the readmes, I have pretty, the, the style that you see on Stimulus Reflex is pretty much what I've been using. Although I don't know if it has a table of contents, which is usually something I add, but there is a readme that I will find and put in the show notes. And it's basically just a list of really nice readmes. And I really like scrolling through that. That's good. Yeah. Cause you always know that if someone always, at least I always feel like if someone put the time in to create a really nice organized readme, then you can guess and assume that they probably put the time into document it well to, you know, write good tests, all that stuff. So I usually like see that and I'm like, okay, you know, someone put effort into this. I assume then that they put effort into everything else, you know? So that, that I think is a good sign. It may not always be right, but it's probably a good rule of thumb to, to kind of judge things on. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I think it started like becoming front of mind because a lot of JavaScript packages have really good readmes. I've noticed that. Or I'm not going to say good readmes, but they're really well formatted and they're pretty nice to look at. 
And when you look at it, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to use this because it's obviously maintained and and it looks cool and there's a bunch of colors here and I like colors. So I've been starting to do more and more of that on the Ruby side because I think they they definitely got that right. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And it feels like there's been a lot of just, you know, fairly... It's it's hard to tell when like pay has grown out of this. Stimulus reflex is like a, an example of like a readme that would be impossibly long if you didn't extract the examples into like a doc site. And pay's docs have mostly lived inside of the readme, which isn't really manageable at this point. You can't find anything and it's just not doable. You guys are using Gitbook for the doc site, right? We are, but I, I don't recommend it. Yeah. I would recommend, oh God, it just slipped. Awesome docs or read the docs. Read the docs is what it's called. Oh, okay. I don't think I've checked that out. I am using Gitbook for Hatchbox's docs, which is fine. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have any major complaints with it and it works. You know, it's better than really for that stuff. Like, for me, it's like, I don't want to maintain a Jekyll site and have to write HTML and, you know, push stuff up and do the design myself. Like, I just want to push up the docs. So that has been something that like, yeah, Gitbook has been better than doing what I probably would have done otherwise, which would have been Jekyll or something. But I'll have to check out, read the docs and, and try that out. Do you like have the docs in the repo and then you build Gitbook from like when you push the master or whatever? No, because... it directly in, yeah. um, in there? Yeah, I use their editor online because Hatchbox is like, you know, a product. So it's not like a, you know, Git repo that I'm publishing docs in or anything. So it's a little bit different, you know. But as, as I like figure out how to do Pay's documentation better, I'm going to want to use something else, you know, so... Uh, I'll have to try this. Yeah, I I like read the docs because the one thing I don't like about the other thing that I already forgot the name of is we build the docs from the repo. So all the documentation for Simus Reflex is inside of the repo. And on pushes to master, it gets built. But there's there used to be, and I don't know, I guess they just moved completely away from this. There's no way to really preview or build those locally. So, and Gitbook has kind of funky syntax that they want to use sometimes. So sometimes we've pushed changes and because we can't preview it, like someone will screw something up and you can't tell until it's already live. And then it's just a pain. But with read the docs, you can ha- still have it in your repo in like a docs file. And it you can run like a, uh, I'm going to forget. I haven't, I use it on RuboCopal Interaction. But you can run like a Python command and it will build and serve the docs locally. And they also make doing like different versions really simple with read the docs. That's nice. Yeah, because that's, we have a lot of like changes and because pre-SEA and Stripe and post-SEA is so different. It was like basically a new gem. Yeah, having multiple versions will be pretty critical if I... I don't know that I'll go back and document that, but I imagine we'll have a version 3 at some point when payment rules change again or something and it'll be like 
certainly important to have version docs. I assume that it's kind of like, uh, you know, your version two can just be like version one, but copy pasted and then start tweaking that separately or whatever. So you at least start not from scratch. Yeah, I I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm happy to like do this one day with you, but I'm pre- basically, if I remember correctly, it will take all of your tags on GitHub, like when you tag a release, it will offer to let you showcase on the, because they host the docs for you, it will allow you to like toggle between the different releases, but you can also specify, like I only want these versions to be toggleable, toggleable, like on the docs. So I added read the docs at some point for RuboCop interaction. It wasn't until after version two. So, or version one or something. So I, I basically just specified like, okay, these versions you can, they, they have docs. So now you can just go and choose the version you want as long as it's documented and then uh, like yeah. toggle between them. Yeah, that's nice. I'll have to, I'll have to try that then. I think that's a, seems like a good way to do it. It gave me flashbacks of that like first job I had out of college where we had a, we had a massive like mono repo that we generated docs from, but it was like when someone pushes to master, we like hook into Git, then trigger Jekyll build and like publish that to a server. And it was, it was nasty, but it was like Perl code that we were documenting. So we would pull out comments or whatever documentation. And then, yeah, that it was the same thing that they, I guess they could have run the Jekyll build stuff locally, but it would have had to like build the docs for the entire monorepo every time, which would have taken a little while versus like just building the docs for the one package they were maintaining or updating. So yeah, that's, there's, it's a lot uh, trickier to do good documentation than it might seem. You can like document your code, but like to go build examples and like all that other stuff, it's, it's a lot of work. It's way more it's hard. You know, effort than, than you think. Yeah, it's super hard. We are lucky with Stimulus Reflex because there is a contributor who came in very early. And if he had not come in very early, the documentation would not be where it's at. Because Nate and I are not documenters. And this person is a very... like He writes most of the documentation he's written, if not all of it at this point. And Stimulus Reflex is pretty well documented. So it, it would not be like that if it wasn't for this person. Because Nate and I are definitely not those types of people. Like we, we make things, we push them out, and then we move on to new things. And this guy has done a very, very good job of making sure the docs are readable, update, updated. And I think that has gone a long way for increasing the adoption of the library. That's good. Yeah, it, it makes or breaks a, a library easily. Like you can imagine if if Devise didn't have the documentation it did, which like was really great, honestly. Like the wiki had an article for do you want to like log in with email or username? You know, here's a, a wiki post on it. Here's how to do it. You want to do login with Facebook, here's how to go set that up. Like there's just so many examples which made Devise something that like it it's 
it feels opaque because it does so much for you and you don't really see the controllers, but like it can be extended to do literally anything you ever wanted. But without that documentation, no one would actually do that. And then it, you would always just assume like, oh, it doesn't do that, not out of the box, or there's not a config option for it. It's like, well, no, sometimes you just like override a method. That's all you have to do. And then voila, you have your feature. And without documentation on that, it never would have gotten you know, the adoption that it did. And it still annoys me that we don't have an official thing like devise or something as the like Rails library for authentication. But maybe one day we can dream. It just I just look at the Laravel community and how they like have an official OAuth thing and they have official like authentication and even like now uh it's like a API or it's like I forget he had to rename the the uh library, but it's like a JWT authentication thing. And you know that stuff is nice to have built in in the framework and or at least from authors that are doing that. And like in the Rails world, we used to have that like platform attack doing device, but now people are moving on because it's been 10 years or whatever. So like we need a new wave of people maintaining things or like stuff to get, I don't know. It's some, like it's a changing of the guards and it it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next like few years, but hopefully we'll still have good maintainers as things go on. Yeah. That is something I've thought about a lot because you know, technically that's my generation or my generation of Rails developers is the ones who ideally would be like starting to get into there. I think I either see that happening or it doesn't happen, but new packages are just created. Yeah. Yep. And we've seen that happen too. Like there was a, there's a lot of gems like the soft delete gems or access list or access taggable that like were written a long time ago. The original author like didn't maintain it. And so then like someone else came in, maybe made a fork and they ended up like building this other version of the gem. And, you know, we, we ended up probably having a lot of those gems that like someone originally maintained, it got forked. Another maintainer came in, extended it with some new features and like now we use access taggable on instead of the original, you know, and it works. It's fine. And sometimes those things get good improvements too. So yeah, we will see what happens. Yeah. It's interesting to see that like evolution because now it's like several generations of Rails developers have been through and I haven't been in any other programming languages or framework communities long enough to see that happen, but I'm sure it happens in you can imagine how much of that's happened in C++ or Java or something or right. .NET, you know? So it's, it's newer for us, but probably like a common thing in those other languages. But you were saying something before we recorded about lambdas and procs? Yes, I was. I said, what's a lambda and what's a proc? <laughs> because I, in my head, like can picture the syntax and looked this up countless times. I read countless articles on it and no matter what, it never sticks and I never know. Like, because like the other day I was pairing somewhere like, is this a good place to use a proc or a lambda? Like, I feel like it is, but I don't know which one and I don't remember the syntax and I don't know. Like, it's just something I always yeah. have to look up. Yeah, see that? That's the thing that like, 
they're similar enough that it's really rare to ever need the difference, I think. It looks like, and I always have to look this up because I, I like once every couple of years, I'm like, what is the difference between these? Like, or, or I need it in a certain situation. And at least on Stack Overflow, like one person says, you know, the one difference is the way they handle arguments. So if you create a proc, proc curly braces is equivalent to proc.new curly braces. And you have to give it a block for a lambda and a proc, same thing. But a lambda gives you a proc that checks the number of arguments passed to it. So that number of the arity, I guess it's called, is going to be important there, I guess. So I maybe that means, yeah, it looks like it means that you can call a proc with all of the arguments are optional. So you wouldn't have to pass them in. So that's an important distinction, I guess. I don't really know when you wouldn't need all the arguments passed in or like, wouldn't you just call a function or something if you needed something a little bit more, you know, and like, that's, I guess, like an example of like Rails does before actions or whatever. And you give a symbol of the method name to go call, you know, that's an alternative to this too, but it's probably got to have, you know, it's got to know either it takes no arguments or a set argument or something. And then the return method definitely functions differently. So in like a a Lambda, if you call return, it will just be kind of the return value of that Lambda, like a block. But if you do it in a proc, it will actually return out of the method it was originally in that was like being executed in. So if you had a method that calls a proc, you call return inside of the proc, it will just quit the method and the proc right then. Versus like the Lambda being called in there would just make that the return value of the Lambda and continue executing the function. So there's, I don't know, there's like, that's pretty nuanced stuff. So if you need it, you've got to, you, you've got it, you can do it. But like, I mean, most of the time I just write a Lambda and that's it. You know, I don't ever, I don't almost ever think of procs. So yeah. Well, it makes me feel good. And has definitely lowered the imposter syndrome that was building in me when I remembered, I don't remember, that you also had to look it up. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that, that like, depending on what you work on regularly, you're not going to like get into these things. Like if you're building, like if you're building rail, regular Rails apps, and most of my stuff is fairly simple, like, you know, controllers, models, like... It's not, I'm not building complex concerns or anything. Like I'm not doing metaprogramming or stuff that like lots of things that needs to be passed around dynamically. So my stuff's generally pretty simple, but if you're doing something like, for example, like the page M, the video that comes out next week on Go Rails is actually something I did for that. Like we need to keep track of so, so the refactoring I did in Pay was to allow multiple models in your app to be billable. Um, they can have subscriptions and pay for things. In the past, it was actually just a single model. And it was because everything was simpler just to say the user is the one we bill. And that was simple. We can create one migration that adds the fields, to the users table and you know, the user is the table we look up for receipts and in webhooks and all that. 
But if you make that multiple, like if a webhook comes in, we now have to search, you know, an array of tables, multiple tables to find the record, which is not going to be super efficient, but like there's not a whole lot of other, you know, we can extract that out to its own billable table and make that associated or something. There's definitely things we could do instead, but to keep it simple, we just made it polymorphic or whatever, like for charges and things. And we just have now an array that will keep track of the models that are billable. Usually it's going to be like one or two models. So I didn't feel like we needed a a whole other table to keep track of things. And so that module we include in user and team or account or whatever. And I have that actually doing some cool stuff where it like just keeps track internally of what classes it's included into so that I can go use that array when a webhook comes in and search users and search teams and accounts or whatever until we find what we're looking for. So, you know, there's definitely like if you're building stuff more complex like that, doing interesting Ruby stuff, building your own DSL and whatever, then yeah, you're probably going to get into the weeds of procs and lambdas and whatever. But most of your day-to-day work, if you're using Rails to go build a product, probably not doing anything like too in the weeds to need to go into the those little nuances. But they're fun to know. And yeah, maybe at least if you know about it, you can take advantage of it later when you forget. But you're like, oh, there's some weird thing that maybe we can use in the procs instead of the lambda here. And that's good to know, but whatever. So this, I thought about this while you were talking and this is adjacent, but not exactly related. When you are passing parameters to a method, do you typically name them? Like do named parameters or do you just pass them all in? Does that make sense? I used to not do named parameters that much, but these days, like named parameters almost all the time. It's just so much more readable to like, like if I'm using the page M, for example, I don't interact with that very often. But if I have named parameters, I can instantly know what it's for with a name and you know, that makes it way easier to work with when I like need to go touch payments code once every six months or something versus like, you know, ordered parameters, which if there's one or two, fine. But if it's something like a, you pass in an object and then true or false, like that true or false always needs a name because like on its own, it doesn't tell you what the hell it does. So I've always felt like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really care until now I'm like, wow, this is, this is like important for me to go reference later on in code when I'm not actively thinking about this feature. So I try and do a lot more of that now, keep the stuff more descriptive so that it just saves me time in the future, like less running around trying to figure out okay, well, what the hell is this true supposed to do actually? Or whatever, is this expecting a string or something? You know, just having a name will oftentimes tell you quite a bit more than than otherwise. So I felt like it's almost crucial to do that. Not always, but you know, 
especially for anything two or three or more, you know, arguments, usually that's like, I'm going to start naming them for sure. Yeah. I thought if it's more than one, I always namespace. And do you, do you namespace or uh, do you name? Cause sometimes there's like, you know, it takes like a link to is kind of interesting. Like you don't want to necessarily say name is this and href is that. So there are situations where I'm like, it's redundant and I know that's how it's going to be. And it's like a core feature of Rails. So like you get used to it fast, but on your own methods, sometimes I'll leave them unnamed if it's like pretty obvious, but then anything that's like configuration options, like have to be named. But oftentimes even those like two arguments like name or an href for a link I might even name them too. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you name those, you know, those like kind of required or assumed parameters? Do you name them or do you kind of like, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't? I almost always do. And what I will do is just try to make sure to, if there's a, I don't always call them with all of the options. So I try to make sure that I always set a value to the parameter and I try to make it like, typically this value is going to be this, like for a Boolean, it's like typically in the code, this Boolean is true. So that way, when you call the method, it, you just don't have to add that in when you call it. But like I said, more than, if it accepts more than one parameter, I almost always namespace it. Speaking of this, when the hell is Rails going to get updated so that I don't have to see all these warnings for the named parameters in, in every Rails 2.7 app? It's driving me nuts. It's driving me nuts too. You can ignore the, you can do something in your CLI to ignore them, but Rails 6.1, you're going to have to wait. Or, no, actually, 6.0 is supposed to come first. I don't, I think they, I think it did. I was going to say, it seems like a reasonable thing to backport. Like they wouldn't have to, but it's also like not a whole lot of warnings. Like there's not, there's maybe 10 methods or something that I typically see, probably more depending on what features of Rails are using. But like for what I'm doing, I don't see, I see like 10 or 15 or something. Like it's, it's plenty, but some of those are redundant, like duplicates and whatever. But Oh my gosh, it would be nice. So I set the flag, like the Ruby opt environment variable to disable those. And then I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out for like five minutes when I switched to a different app, why Ruby wouldn't boot anymore. And I was like, what is wrong? Like, oh my God, what is this like invalid hyphen thing? And, you know, I'm running just IRB and it's breaking. And then it took me five minutes to realize Oh yeah, I said that environment variable last week and I haven't gone back to Ruby 2.6 or, you know, whatever old version of Ruby. And it was trying to use that on the older Ruby, which isn't valid. And it was like, because it's in the environment variable, you don't even know it's, it's doing that. And then, you know, you're getting some strange error. And I was like, what is happening? It was pretty funny. I was like, yeah. wow. I ran into that too. But... One thing you could do 
do you typically run your Rails commands? Like if you're doing Rails server, do you typically just write Rails server or do you use bundle exec or do you use like bin Rails? I use Rails server, but with the ZSH plugin thingy that I believe does bundle exec automatically for me. I don't know if it does because I know it uses rack. It'll do um, racks. I know because I used to use that and then I found that it wasn't running some of the commands I wanted it to run the way I wanted them run. So I just mm. took all of the commands that I actually used from that plugin and just manually put them in my ZSH config and just removed gotcha. that. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't remember. I may have disabled that ZSH plugin because I think I had the Rails and the bundle or whatever plugins. Mm-hmm. Um it looks like in my ZSHRC that I have that um, disabled. So it's just running the Rails executable directly from the gem. And then that's picking up. Because there are times when I'll like bundle exec, but I only try and do it if I have to. And I don't, I probably should use bin Rails, but like it works fine most of the time without it. So yeah, just Rails server or like I'll do Foreman. And usually if I'm going to do Foreman, then I'll like, put bundle exec rails or bin rails in the proc file just so I know that it's going to run it and I shouldn't have any issues. But normally if I'm going to boot up the Rails server, I just do rails, rails S. So I almost, whenever I can, I use bin stubs for everything. So you'll probably notice if you ever look in any of the projects that I work on, there's a heavy load of bin stubs like for standard RB and for, annotate and rails and uh, the only reason i brought that up because i imagine there's something you could put if you use the bin rails if you use the rails bin sub in the project i imagine there's something you could put in the bin sub to like export the ruby like thing to like ignore those commands right from there and then it's project specific yeah man it's funny that you mentioned annotate i was talking to somebody yesterday on their on their project, they'd seen like me using annotate, and I I love it. Like having those notes in my models, being able to see like what columns I have is really valuable. And it was pretty funny because we were going through this code base, and the models. The guy was like, "Hey, don't worry about these. I think I renamed the like this column in the comments up above that that were like I thought annotate generated them." I think he had copied out of the DB schema or something and put them in there and was manually maintaining them. And I was like, you know, the annotate gem will do this for you automatically when you run a migration. And he was like, what? Like, let's pretend, let's pretend I didn't say this. Like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> and I was like, that's hilarious. Like, it's worth, it's so valuable. It's worth doing even if you're like, if you have to do it manually, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Yeah, but the annotate gem... And I don't want, I'm, I'm not trying to complain, but they, I've had troubles using the annotate gem before and just literally just executing it. And also the other, like Nate and I keep our gems up to date. So recently, and I'm trying to remember what exactly it was. I think they, in like the default, if they changed some things in like the default where they would show you like, you know, default false or default like empty array, I think they put them in quotes during one release and they did something else and they put them in quotes and then like the next release, they like reverted it. So I basically had two commits that were like 
changes to massive amounts of files because I reran annotate and it changed all of them. And then oh, like man. You know, a few commits later updated it again and it had changed it all back. That's funny. Yeah. Cause I think I've seen that happen before and wondered about that and then just like wrote it off. And I was like, yeah, whatever commit, you know, annotate updated things. But yeah, it is, it is a little frustrating because whenever you do that, it's like updated your models, updated your controllers. If you put the notes in there and then like your text, your, your tests, your fixtures, all that stuff. It ends up being like this, like insane commit. And usually I'm like, I want it just to be annotate and that's it. Not any of my other changes because I can't see them easily when it's all together. Just massive. Yeah. That's one thing that Nate and I, we weren't doing it first. And now I'm specifically like, no, this has to be, if you, if standard updates and it changes something that's going to change something throughout the entire code base or annotate updates and it's going to change something throughout the entire code base, like it has to be in a separate commit because it's just so much noise otherwise. And then it's hard, especially because mm-hmm. then I just start scrolling because I'm like, eh, annotate, annotate, annotate. And then right. you have other changes in the same file that are actually important. Like I may miss them. So exactly. we pretty much are, like that needs to be a different commit. Yeah, I'm with you. It's just, it's too easy to, and I've done that before, like committed a, a change that I meant to have in a separate commit. And then it was like, inside of that giant annotate commit that was like, oh yeah, I accidentally added this one line that I didn't mean to do or I missed something and yeah, it drives me nuts. So yeah, I'm with you. That needs to be its own its own commit. It's still useful. It's just, mm-hmm. it's noisy for sure. It's, it's yeah, because at CodeFun, right as like at this point in time, if you update annotate and it's going to update things, you're going to have at least 43 changed files. Yeah. Not yeah. including the gem files. So like that's that's undoable, but yeah. yeah it is and nice. I'm about to make one of those one of those giant commits to go rails. Probably after we get off here, I'm going to go back and I have to finish redoing the blog and the homepage and probably the about and a couple other like extra pages, but I've spent the past two weeks redesigning GoRails and moving it to Tailwind UI. And uh, it is exhausting, dude. It is worth it. Like 100% worth it. I can go tweak anything instantly. But like the formatting of... Like it's interesting because to pull off really detailed, nice, you know, design... Tailwind UI like goes over and above to do that, which means like you end up with like four extra divs sometimes to get the padding and everything to work perfect between mobile and medium and large format, you know, screens and all that. And it makes things like a lot more complex. Like it looks perfect all the time, which is great. Mine won't because I've been hacking it together, but you know, it is. It has been sweet to to make that change because you can do anything you want. CSS Grid is the first time I've ever used that. Works amazing. It's really nice. And I love being able to say like on mobile, the grid is one column. And then on, you know, medium screens and up, it's 12 columns. Like that is sweet. But oh my God, like 
I don't know, probably every single file in the entire application, at least views wise, has changed like massively. And I'm like just leaving it for one more or less one commit. It was probably my fourth. I had like two or three false starts on it where I was like, oh, I'm going to do that this weekend. I'm going to like rip out Bootstrap and update this. There's more views than I thought, but also every view like takes a lot more work than just applying like a, you know, bootstrap theme or something. Like it was a nightmare amount of work, but it'll be good once it's done. I'm really excited to like finally update it, but it's exhausting. Yeah. I, I have redesigned code fun. So I know how that is. And I've also gone through multiple times through like almost hundred, a hundred view files and changed something in code fun. And it is, it's really tiring, but the moving to components is definitely going to assist that for us mm, because yeah. I wrap every, almost every page is wrapped in like a, a page component, which has stuff mm. and things on it. So I don't, it, it, I'm slowly but surely making it easier, but it is, it's, it's, it is hard. And it's always like, there's no way this is going to take that long. It's going to be super easy. And it, that's yeah. a total lie. And the other yeah. thing is somehow I always find unused things in code find, like, Every single time I'm like, wait, are we using this? Like, is this like it, the route is valid? Like, I can go to the page. I was like, but we're not, this page isn't visible to anyone. I'm like, what, what, what is this, Nate? The, this is funny. Yeah. The other day, I found one of those things and I was like, Nate, are we using this? And it was, uh, it was for comments or something. And he's like, no. He's like, let's get rid of it. He's like, and then let's go ahead and drop the model or drop the column from the database and just get rid of all of it. Like, we're not using it. We don't need it. Let's just get it out of there. So I did that. And then like two or three days ago, Nate was like, hey, so remember that comment thing that we got rid of? How hard would that be to bring back? (laughs) He's like, because now that you reminded me that we had that, I can see a use case for it. He's like, even though we weren't using it at the time, we were before the redesign. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, we need that back now. And I was like, damn it. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. I definitely found some of those like unused things or like stuff that was just, it's funny because like these sites evolved probably, I don't know, six times since I created it, like way back when probably that was probably 2013, 2014 when I like wrote the first version of GoRails and oh my gosh. Yeah. So much is like, there's stuff that I'm like, do I even need this feature anymore? Like I built it just to kind of build it at the time. And I'm like, does anyone use this? And stuff that I've also found is like just blatantly wrong or, you know, like didn't work. And I'm like, I haven't used that feature myself. Maybe people have and it's been broken for them, but I haven't used it. And yeah, there was, there was like, you know, some little things too, where I was like, this is going to be great because everything was in Bootstrap before, which meant I was using jQuery for everything jQuery for tabs and dropdowns and everything. Then I had like tons of spaghetti code of like, okay, when TurboLinks loads, do this. Switched all of that to stimulus components. I switched even little things of like, it's annoying, but like I want to be able to cache the episodes and the results. And But I still want those, like if you completed the episode, I want it to show a green check mark that like, you know, you completed it. So you don't need to go watch that again. And 
that stuff I had like had JavaScript that on TurboLinks load will loop through every episode on the page and check and see if you've watched it and update it. But now like I have a stimulus component for each one of those. And so it just does it automatically, you know, and it's been like a really nice improvement to have. But oh God. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to clean stuff up. There's a lot of old things in there. Stuff like I used Ransack to do searching, which is fine, but it's only like a database like query actually. So it's not doesn't do any like no features of full text search that you really want. No typo fixing, that sort of stuff. And it appears that in a couple search boxes around the site, I had switched it over to PG search, but not all of them. So now they're all consistently using the same thing and whatever. But it's funny to like look at that. Like I was clearly like frustrated with this and then gave it a little bit of time, but not enough. And it wasn't super important to go like fix all of these things, all the search boxes around the site. So I didn't. And it was kind of funny to like look at that. Now I'm like, good. It's all going to be super consistent, easier to maintain and whatever. Like these quick one-off fixes that I did five years ago were just to get something fixed quickly and move on to like trying to pay the bills. Now I'm like, okay, things are more mature now. I can go and clean it all up now that I know what it needs to do and whatever. So it's it's been a good thing to walk through, but it's crazy. Like still got to do notifications or I'm poking through the site and like, oh, I didn't even know this page existed. Or how do I get here? I forgot to put the link in the nav or whatever. And like, here's seven other pages I forgot to do. Great. I guess it'll be another couple of days before I finish this. Feels like it's never going to end. Yeah. The old, how do I even get to this route? Or yeah. you know, it's always, always fun. But yeah. we've been gapping. We probably need to wrap this up. Cool. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, hopefully Nate or and or Jason will be back next week and we'll we'll catch up with them. But till then, have a good have a good weekend and next week. Yeah, you as well. Good luck. All right, get the rails out of the door. Yeah. Should be up by before Monday, I hope. So hold you to it. Unless I find those unless I find those other pages that are still hiding. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Talk to you later. Cool. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote ruby.